Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Hello, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel Podcast. I'm John Benzik from VentureSuperfly.com, where we help double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you don't know what you're doing. Please visit the VentureSuperfly.com website and visit the contact page to join our mailing list. Today I'm interviewing Ryan Hitzel. He's the founder of a men's outdoor adventure travel apparel brand with roots in action sports, and he's based in California. The name of that brand is called Rourke Revival. His company has been recognized among action sports and surf industries as one of the hottest, fastest growing apparel brands. So I'm extra stoked to talk to Ryan today during this exciting period in his entrepreneurial journey. Being a successful clothing brand is not easy, let me tell you. So it'll be great to learn how they've succeeded. Some great lessons in store for us, I'm sure. Hello, Ryan, and thanks for being here. Welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Thanks for having me, John. Stoked to be here with you. Oh, man, it'll be great. So, Ryan, within this podcast, there will be three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. The second part is the Let's Get Personal piece, where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. And the final part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. Ryan, what do you think? Are you ready for some questions? I'm ready, let's do this. Let's do it, here we go. Ryan, tell us the story. How did you originally come up with the idea to start Rourke Revival? Well, back in 2008, 2009, you know, I had grown up surfing and traveling a ton and you know, I'd been working in the creative industry for a while and I just felt like within especially the action sports industry and even the outdoor industry as well, that there's a real kind of lack of, you know, authenticity and, and storytelling and, you know, brands that were kind of telling it like it really, you know, was uh, being a surfer, adventurer, traveler, skateboarder, you know, someone that was traveling the world and, and experiencing, you know, all these things from waves and, and actual surfing, but to the all the way to the actual adventurism that actually gets you there. So it felt like there was a real kind of hole in the market, and you know I had spent most of my life traveling up to that point, and not only to you know surf destinations and you know mountains, but you know to cities around the world, enjoying kind of what the the urban landscape has to offer. And was an artist and designer, and always tried to come back from my trips with some sort of creative expression. Might be a you know writing, might be a photo show, might be illustrations published a book at one point based on, on some travel. So it felt like there might be a way for me to merge kind of my passions as a, as a person and kind of professional passions with 
what I saw as kind of a potential hole in the marketplace. So that's really where the idea for, for Rourke started, at least from a business perspective. Who do you sell to now? Uh, we sell from, you know, everyone from core surf shops in the surf market, some skate market, boutiques, menswear boutiques, and uh, we have a, a quickly growing business in, in the outdoor marketplace as well, with uh, shops like Seed People's Market all the way up to um, a launch here in, I think, two weeks at REI. So definitely, you know, I'd say 80% of the business is in core action sports and some regional chains, and is now reaching out into that outdoor kind of sector. Exciting. How many retailer doors do you serve now, roughly? Uh, we serve about 400 doors in the U.S., roughly 75 in Europe, uh, 50 in Japan, uh, and then about 50 in Canada. How many employees do you have now, and how many did you start with perhaps in that first six months? Um, first six months, pretty typical uh, entrepreneurial story. Um, you know, I had a, a job uh, as a creative director in the ad ad industry and um, really kind of wanted to get away from that. And so really kicked it off, you know, out of my house um, by myself for the first six months and uh, did a little trip just here in California and, and kicked off the line uh, solo just to see if, if there was any interest at all. It felt like it could be kind of a complicated idea chasing this this guy Rourke around the world and, and uh, creating clothes inspired by those adventures. So I wanted to kind of test it. So I got some product into the marketplace and you know, had some connections uh, in action sports because I had worked there um, out of college and um, prior to working in advertising. And from there, I brought on the first of three core partners within that first uh, uh, year. And um, now the company has 12 pe people full-time at the office, and we have a kind of a service provider, operational partner that, you know, employs, I don't know, maybe probably another dozen people touch the business in one way or another on the operational side. Sure. And how did you come up with the name? What is the story behind that? A uh, little bit of a secret, um, but we, we don't really talk about it very often, but I'm um, happy to disclose it here. You know, I, I went through a bunch of, you know, names, you know, knew that we were following this, this dude around. And so I wanted it to be a man's name, um, but one that wasn't super common and went through a bunch. And I'd always been a fan of, um, a character in a book called Howard Rourke. who's a character in Ayn Rand's book, The Fountainhead. And the character was, you know, could be viewed in a bunch of different ways, but ultimately was, you know, really a rugged individualist that, you know, stopped at nothing, uh, to, to get to his his goals and kind of sacrificed a lot a lot to be you know to focus on one kind of vision for for the world and his life so you know it's kind of loosely connected to this idea of the ultimate adventure um, in Rourke and so that's where it spawned we don't we don't talk about that as far as you know the brand goes but uh, that's what uh, I tell anybody who asks and about half the people or a quarter of the people maybe have read the book and, and know what I'm talking about but most don't. Yeah, I was curious about that because I did re read the book. It's one of my favorites. Ryan, most entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions, and many of those assumptions prove to be different from what they expected, thereby making them scramble to make changes in order to survive. Regarding Rourke Revival's uniqueness, did your original assumption about the uniqueness prove motivating to consumers and to retailers? 
or did you discover a slightly different selling proposition after being in business for a while and getting some customer feedback? It's an interesting question. Um, there's definitely been a host of assumptions, to be honest, more on the business side that um, that we were wrong about initially. I think the the rad thing about the idea is it's really been pure the whole time. You know, we felt like having a unique brand storytelling line that that could evolve but really not change all that much over time was was kind of the holy grail for us. You know, I wanted something that you know in in travel and adventure that you know I personally wouldn't outgrow, but I felt like the storytelling really wouldn't have to change all that much as the company grew and, and, and went into different market segments. So the stories we tell about, you know, surf adventure, surf adventurism really aren't all that different uh, from when we go to a place like Nepal and ride motorcycles in the Himalayas and, and track and spend time in tea houses. So there's, there's this real through line that has proved to be, you know, very consistent and we haven't had to segment it all that much. Um, so we haven't, you know, I'd say, I'd say one thing has changed actually recently and that's just, you know, the thirst for like real stories that are happening like right now today. So, you know, if anything, maybe we've kind of, I wouldn't say changed course, but, um, we've added kind of a lane to our adventure and our, our pathway where we're telling a lot of, of real stories about real adventurism. And then we have this other kind of, you know, fictional, non-fictional blend of, of, of almost kind of novel, novel-like storytelling about this character named Rourke. So, yeah, I don't know that that, that any of those assumptions were um, received poorly. Um, if anything, I think, you know, exploring it more and going deeper and, and retailers wanting us to just be louder in our telling of the stories is probably the only thing that we're working on right now. Um, and I don't think that's outside of of what we assumed, but when you get into the business reality, sometimes, you know, capital and, and how you have to deploy it, especially in a um, cash-intensive business like we're in, it's those little things that get away from you a little bit, like just the magnification of your message. But yeah, I don't know. I think maybe we're in a unique place where we started off with a unique idea, and we, we're just kind of really trying to get it out there a little bit louder and broaden it a little bit. That's terrific. So Ryan, let's get personal on a few topics. Many aspiring entrepreneurs don't know what they don't know before starting a business. They're sort of unconsciously incompetent in certain areas, not as fully prepared as they thought they should be in starting a business. Before you started Rourke Revival, to what extent were your previous career skills, maybe in advertising, design, illustration, how aligned were those skills with your task of launching an apparel brand, sort of maybe on a scale of one to 10, 10 being very aligned. How did your previous skills and knowledge fit with the new startup? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, th I think to your point, you know, every, every year I learn something that I thought I knew uh, the prior year or five years ago um, on, on both sides of it, on the business side and on the brand side. But you know, on a scale of one to ten, I think you know, give it maybe a six or seven as far as my preparedness. Sure. Um, I had a, I had an interesting path, and in that you know, like most, I started at the bottom. You know, I was just a I was a designer and you know, kind of creative thinker out of college, and was trying to find you know somewhere that I could work on um, something passionate and and something that I believed in as far as like a brand direction. And as I went through my career, I you know, I worked my way all the way up to being a creative director on 
worked at an agency in, in LA called Deutsch on you know brands like Volkswagen and Dr Pepper and um, some really big brands. Where as a creative director, I had access to VPs of marketing and CEOs and um, more like business people. You know, so I got really interested. You know, maybe about ten years ago, and just kind of brand building and making things, and less concerned with you know graphic design and, and uh, you know art direction, which were my roots. So. There's a ton that, you know, believe it or not, you know, a handful of, of, of really a handful of, of meetings with, you know, everyone from the CEO of the, you know, ad agency to the CEO of Dr. Pepper or VP of marketing at Volkswagen that just really helped me understand how important the business aspects of brand building and sales were. I think as a young artist, you always, you know, think that, you know, the art and, you know, the ads and you know, the product, they're always the most important thing and something, you know, uh, things that are, are so unique and hard to find and hard to buy in, in people. But you come to learn the further you go that the finance and, and the way the business runs and is just as important, if not more than important, than all the creative aspirations you have. And so it was really cool as far as my process to, to learn about that stuff, um, like I said, from amazing, amazing business people uh, for the, that work for those companies. And so it really kind of reshaped, you know, in about a five-year period, the way I thought about my job as a, as a creative and as a brand builder. Um, so a lot of those conversations, um, and they, <laughs> with people like that, they're usually like playing golf or drinking whiskey or, you know, getting pummeled in, in an office because you blew a pitch for your agency. But, um, they 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 were so so rad for me to to have the those experiences and 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 ones that you know if you're just an art director or a writer um, you might not have the opportunity to have you kind of get to a level where you're working with brands um, with partners at brands and uh, it really kind of prepared me for more of the entrepreneurial necessities that I'm I'm just deep in now than I ever could have imagined. If you went back to advertising, let's just say. You had a magic wand and, and went back to it. Do you think you would be a better creative director as a result of being an entrepreneur? I think absolutely. Um, you know, I've thought about it often. And, you know, on one hand, you know, creative is, is something very sacred that I think at some points in the process needs to work kind of in its own, uh, I don't want to say silo because that's a little bit rough, but its own space just to kind of develop itself without you know, a ton of outside um, influence. But at the same time, that creative needs to, you know, hit business strategy, brand demands, sales demands, and it has to achieve. And I think a lot of times in, in advertising, we, we make, we made things that, you know, may be, you know, creatively excellent um, and win awards and be, you know, applauded by, you know, industry types, but they don't really sell anything. And that's great for the careers of, you know, art directors and creative directors and writers and, and ad agencies. But at some point you have to sell something. And in order to sell something, the ad probably does need to be influenced by um, business people and brand strategists. And um, so I think that's part of what I've learned. And, and to be honest, part of what maybe Rourke struggles with, you know, we've been a, a brand that's been you know, creatively, creatively lauded and, um, was won awards and um, you know certainly selling product as well, but I think part of our task now is how to you know trying to figure out how to connect it with 
with huge brand growth and product and, and the other stuff. Marketing's one side of things, but there's so many other aspects that make a startup especially successful. A lot of unknowns too. So sure, I definitely think I, I definitely think I would go back and have a an interesting perspective on 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 marketing and, and advertising that's that's much more connected to the brand and the business realities than maybe I would have you know ten years ago. So since starting Rourke Revival, what's the number one lesson you think you've learned? Huh. Um, it's hard for me to to isolate maybe just one thing, but I think there's a few. So let me let me let me mention a few and and maybe we can get to the bottom of which one's more important, but the one thing that I I didn't know that it, I didn't know was how important the capitalization of the company is and the structuring and that component um, depending on, you know, where you want to go with the company, um, it may or may not be important. If you have a lot of money personally, it may not be quite as important. Um, but if you're looking to fund a business with investors and um, different types of investors, um, how your business plan, budgeting, um, strategy lines up to your capitalization planning and capital raises is so important. And so I think that's one thing that I thought I kind of understood going into it, kind of, <laughs> for an art director, but have come to realize over the last couple of years that it's very, very complicated and I've had some mentorships with some uh, some great entrepreneurs that, that really do understand it and you know would probably hold that cap structure planning and strategy as one of the most important things that they've done. That's that's guys like Jeff Curl at Stance and um, and some others that that really knew what they were doing there and you can you can see it in the way that they've grown and how they founded the company. So that's one thing. I think I think the other thing that can be hard for an entrepreneurial, and, and you kind of touched on it a few times, when you have an idea, when you have a, a concept for a brand that makes things, it's almost kind of like this this double-edged sword where you want the idea to evolve, um, and you want the idea to to be tweaked and tinkered on in order to meet sales goals and meet market demand and meet retail demand um, with your retail partners. But on the other side of things, there's a purity of of being a leader and doing things that trying to do things that no one's ever done, that leaves you in a isolated place sometimes. Um, sometimes those decisions are wrong, and sometimes those decisions are right, and you know the results are exponentially better than if you would have um, you know done something that the whole industry is doing. So I think. You know, it's it's always an, an interesting decision whether you stay the course on on an idea that feels like it's fresh and has never been done, and knowing when to pivot and go back to you know something that's a little bit more tried and true. So um, sometimes leadership is a is a lonely place because there's nobody else doing what you're doing, and often it takes a little bit of time uh, for consumers or to be honest, nowadays maybe even um, you know, the retail segment to understand what you're trying to do. So, you know, I think kind of as an entrepreneurial, holding true to what you believe in and trying to be a, a leader if that's what you're supposed to be doing and also knowing when to kind of pivot back to the mean if you have to. Um, and often that's a, it's really hard to know where you're at in that space when you're doing something, trying to do something new and fresh, you know. Sure. And along those same lines, Ryan, Many entrepreneurs, including very successful ones, 
have regrets in doing things incorrectly early in their entrepreneurial journey. And I think those regrets can reveal valuable lessons to, insp to aspiring entrepreneurs. Since you started Rourke Revival, would you have approached the business differently if you could go back and do it over again? You know, the, I can't say that I would, would have approached it differently, but the big thing that we talk about right now is the modern business. As you know, consumerism has really changed in the last, I'd say, three to five years, but there's been a, a massive sea change in the last six months to a year um, as to how the majority of people are shopping and what they're shopping for, how they're spending their money. We started the brand really in the very end of 2009, when we started it, we when we started Rourke, we didn't have um, online sales the first year, but I think the second year we we launched um, Rourke.com with with uh, a sales component to it. Uh, so direct consumerism wasn't it was taking off at that time, but social media was you know just starting to happen. Instagram was like barely off the ground. Facebook was there, um, but we really started the brand with a wholesale first mentality. Um, and kind of direct to consumerism as a concept really didn't take hold, I think, until about 2012, 2013. So we're kind of this like digitally native wholesaler um, that has the potential to do a lot, a lot of direct to consumer business. And we like, we like the wholesale component. Um, right now, you're seeing kind of a reshuffling of that deck with strong retailers prevailing and um, kind of. C level, B level, D level retailers really struggling and, and truly going out of business um, every day. So I don't know that I would go back to that time and, and, and be a direct to consumer first brand. We really value the partnerships we have with, with great retail over there um, in, in, the, in the wholesale sector. But I do think, you know, as we kind of convert Rourke into, I would just call it a, a modern brand. You know the direct consumer component, especially with a brand like ours, which is heavy in storytelling, heavy in branding, somewhat uh, complicated when it comes to comprehension because it's there's deep storytelling within the product and the marketing and everything. It really is the perfect direct consumer brand, but at the same time, you know, like I said a few times now, the the, the wholesale partnerships are something that um, are amazing when they work, and so maybe if I went back, I would have jumped maybe invested a bit more in a direct to consumer earlier but you know we like we like the balance that we're we're trying to achieve and and we're excited about you know pivoting the brand here over the next couple of years to more of just an experience um, that that services both wholesale and direct to consumer sure and to change topics a little bit it seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting a business but they never start one Starting a business is pretty unusual. What motivates a person like you, Ryan, to stop just talking about launching a business and to actually go out and start an apparel company? That's a good question, John. Um, I think about it every day. <laughs> when I'm the first one into the office and the last one to leave. and There's definitely a responsibility in it that you never really anticipated. But I think for most people that that have an idea, and that's whether it's a you know, an idea for a brand, an idea for a product, um, an idea for, you know, a technology. A lot of creative people, at least, I think, struggle to just get the idea off of a pad of paper and um, into production to where people can critique it and either, you know, that idea flies and is successful or 
just bombs and, and, and you're on to the next one. So I think a lot of people just in general have a hard time taking that first step and taking something that's very personal and, and something you cherish and like putting it out into the world. You know, I think it's, it's almost like, Hey, look, we're gonna, we've got a kid and we've, we've tried to raise a little bit inside the house and it's time for the kid to go to kindergarten or maybe even college and get out there and kind of run on its own. It's, it can be scary. So that is the biggest part of it is just like I told you before, like, you know, I had a, I was lucky enough to have a, a rad job that paid me enough money to where I could devote some of that capital to the first couple years of, of the brand. And so the first six months was really a, a, just a proof of concept. I didn't bet really anything that it would, you know, work or not work, but it did take some courage and, you know, uh, to get it, to get it out there and to pursue it and, um, you know, get it at a trade show, learn how to make clothes, which I didn't really know how to do in the beginning, which is probably the scariest part. But I think, I think you got to jump off the cliff, you know, and, and with anything, you know, putting a couple million dollars at risk day one, you know, tied to you as you jump off that cliff is super scary and, and something that most people probably shouldn't do. And, and I didn't do, um, you know, I had just enough money to where I thought I could get it to the first stage and, and just enough will to, to get it out there into the world and accept the response and, you know, and, and you might not get the response right away. It may take some time. So, you know, I think the biggest thing is, is, is risk tolerance and you definitely have to, um, be able to tolerate a large amount of risk to not only, you know, kick off a brand idea and get it out in the world, but to carry it forward. Because, you know, I think as, as you could relate, John, I think there's a, there's almost a crazy, crazy person sensibility about the entrepreneurial spirit. Most people will look at you and be like, dude, what are you doing? Like you're sacrificing so much. You're, you're kind of crazy. You're like living on the edge, right? With, with the business and, and, and everything. And so I do think it takes, you know, someone that, that, that can shoulder that. But, um, the first step is just getting it out there and letting it, you know, let, letting that, that bird, you know, out of your hands and seeing if it can fly. And if it doesn't, then, you know, you're on to the next idea sure. or you're back to work for someone else. <laughs> right. And given your background as a creative director and an art director, I suspect to some extent or even a large extent, you're a creator at heart. Do you think if that's the case, do you think it was your destiny to start a business of your own? I'd always kind of had the, you know, the idea that I'd like to start a business in the back of my head, but you know, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. For me, the true genesis and passion of why I do it every day and, you know, and why I've taken all the risk is I just, like, I love making things and I love when they're useful for people and it stokes them. Uh, so it's like this kind of continual shaping and sculpting of this idea for a brand that motivates motivates me every day to some extent I've had to learn how to like make money and try and be profitable and run a great business that that stuff that you know as we talked about earlier I didn't it wasn't really in me I had to kind of learn that and I think you know through some choices with business partners um, I've had to kind of bring on some other people that truly know how to run run businesses and that's been very helpful for me to get back to what I'm good at which is I think shaping this thing and so yeah, I think as a creative person, maybe I was destined just because I like to make stuff. And you know, and when I say make stuff, I I don't mean just like a, an ad or a t-shirt graphic or something. I think it's 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 a rad 
you know, process to bring something new into the world, whatever it is. Um, and so that's what honestly motivates me. So I don't know, maybe you're onto something there. What has been your biggest frustration since starting the business? I think my biggest frustration has been trying to find ways to a focus on what I'm good at and, and, and try and build the brand when you, you know, when you're like the founder and CEO and creative director, you know, there's a lot of tasks that are dropped on your desk every day and a lot of responsibility. And so for me, just trying to balance, um, that all of that stuff internally at work and then trying to balance life as well with family has probably been the most frustrating for me because it's never perfect. It's kind of always in flux and somebody's always mad at you, um, whether it's an employee, a wife, a kid, um, a retailer. So there's so many different, you know, I think challenges that every day unfolds with. And um, so that can get a little bit frustrating, but you know, as you grow and you, you trust other people in the business and hand off, um, you know, tasks, it's gotten a lot easier. I think the other frustration, if anything, is that, you know, I think all businesses are capital intensive, but apparel, as you know, is pretty crazy. The cash cycles are super, super, super long. And just now with, with the whole direct-to-consumer movement, it's gotten better because consumers are paying you upfront as they purchase. So, that's changed it a little bit, but um, it's still a, a low margin business and you just always need money. And so, again, when you go to like the daily tasks of things to do, it's like, hey, am I going to try and make the product line better? Am I going to try and do you know, the two weeks of research on a destination in two hours? Um, am I going to go out and try and find a million dollars for the company? What am I going to do? You have to make all these choices. Um, and, and often, you know, because of all the choices, you're not doing one single thing perfectly or as good as it needs to be done. So that can be frustrating, Yeah, at least internally. I don't know what the outside world thinks, but yeah. Sure. And with these frustrations that are very common in starting a new business, many entrepreneurs, even very seasoned ones, experience self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had, if any, and how have you dealt with it? I've definitely had some. You know, a lot of my self-doubt, you know, when I've had it, has really been focused on the stuff that I'm not necessarily trained to do. And um, so whether that's raising money or, you know, running a business as it gets more complicated and more complicated, um, I've definitely had to look at myself in the mirror and go, hey, look, man, like, you might be good, good at making things, you might be decent with people, but when it truly gets into the dynamics of a profitable business and the, the, the steps you need to make um, on an hourly basis to hit goals and, and, and run the company, um, just from a mechanical side, like that's just not, you know, I, I've discovered, and I think I always knew that that wasn't really my thing. So it's been, it's been great, you know, for, for me to bring in, you know, a, a partner or two that knows how to do that. And I think the self doubt is actually a really, really, it can be a good thing as long as you can isolate what it is that's creating it and then fix it. You know, hopefully, you know, I think if you don't find out what's causing it and fix it, then that's kind of the beginning of the end because you lose your confidence and you kind of start operating in the fog of war. So I think, um, you know, and that's a, that's like an eternal war, (laughs) you know, and and so isolating what's causing it's super important. And, you know, I think you have a responsibility to accept, to accept it and then fix it um, as a leader of business. So I've definitely, 
experience it. It's a pretty, it's actually, you know, as you come out of uh, the feelings of sad doubt, self-doubt, it's, it's pretty rad kind of opportunity to grow as a, as a person too. So I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily. Yeah. So Ryan, starting a business is very difficult, as you know. How has starting your own business changed you, if at all? I think it's changed me in that you have to learn to both be self-reliant on yourself because you're the one that's you know opening the door every day and, and closing it, um, but also trust and rely on other people. So I think that combination is, is definitely kind of helped me grow as a person because on one hand, you have self-reliance, and on the other hand, you have to rely on others to do their job too. So it's an interesting kind of paradigm. What do you think you've learned most about yourself? You know, I've I've learned, I've really learned about my weaknesses. You know, as a as, as a person, and I've also learned a bit about my strengths. I think I probably knew more about my strengths and my weaknesses, but it's been it's been very interesting to learn about what you're good at and what you're not good at. So that's probably the biggest thing for me. Are there some brands or leaders or people in the industry or outside the industry that have been most influential to you? Yeah, there, there's there's a handful of people, you know, and I could I could go through a few that uh, I work with personally, and then you know people like Steve Jobs on the creative side that were just full pirates. I guess entrepreneurial side with Steve as well, but I work for two really really talented people that stood out still stand out to me and um, they both were very different so I started working uh, when I was a kid at a, at a company called Volcom that's gotten pretty big now and the founder co-founder and CEO of that company is a guy named Richard Wolcott and at that time I was super super lucky to have a lot of access to him and you know I could call him on a cell phone and he could call he would call me and so it was a really really interesting mentoring process in that I think that that Richard is he was a great. He's a great leader as a CEO, but he's almost like just a marketing genius um, and creative person that's kind of masked as a CEO. And so it was interesting that his title and his position was one thing, but he was kind of something else, um, extraordinary. I also worked at Deutsch, the advertising agency, for a guy named Eric Hirschberg, who's now, I believe, the CEO of Activision, and had a ton of access to him as well as kind of my leader there. He was a chief creative officer at the time but he was almost more of a CEO kind of entrepreneur and so and he, you know he masked himself as a creative person but he had this extraordinary talent to sell things and be a, just a fantastic leader and so both both of those guys were they're extraordinary at, at both tasks but it was interesting to work for people that seemed to be super special at something that their title didn't allude to so both of them taught me so much about both sides of the business. You know, when I go back to what we talked about earlier, you know, those two personalities and, and humans definitely helped me grow and understand both, you know, how to be unique creatively and also how to sell an idea and be a leader and be passionate about the business side of it. So Ryan, here we are in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Ryan, let's talk about raising capital. It sounded like you took some of your personal savings to help start the company. But after that, did you go to outside investors? Yeah, so in the beginning, I, I kind of had a, my family and my wife and I had kind of a, a budget almost of what we thought we would 
invest in the company over the first couple of years and, and, and definitely spent it all and then some. So I started with my own cash and kind of looked at that um, and, and you know one or two f- uh, friends and family investors very early on as kind of the proof of concept stage and, and kind of how we earned in I guess the equity in the company. Rourke has, uh, has had one round of outside investment um, that was about almost four years ago now. Uh, so about two years into starting the company that occurred uh, and we're just about to close a true second round, almost like a series A. So, you know, I think unless you have massive personal wealth, um, which you'll learn a lot of entrepreneurs actually do, um, that you wouldn't have realized, especially in apparel, personal wealth or family wealth with, with easy access. So that's a great start if you do. I didn't necessarily have it. I was a little bit more of a, you know, blue collar worker as far as capitalizing the company. But, um, you know, raising money is something that's very, very difficult. It's very emotional. It takes a ton of time. You know, it has you out there kind of on a stage pitching, you know, your idea, your business, your company to people that are super, super smart, much smarter than you most likely, um, and that have a ton of money and, you know, tend to be very picky about how they spend it. And um, so that's uh, going into, you know, the second round of investment. It's, um, it's a really rad experience because there's a lot of juice and a lot of momentum and it's really fun but at the same time it's it's uh, a really long process and gets very very complicated so do you have a top number one piece of advice for aspiring entrepreneurs about raising capital my number one piece of advice would be twofold it'd be number one don't be afraid to do it don't hoard all of your equity Um, and as a part of that don't all your equity internally um, you know as you bring other partners on whether they're co-founders or just key employees from the get-go you know I think it's it's proven that sharing the sharing the wealth of it uh, is 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 important and it keeps people motivated and I think a lot of entrepreneurs get into it thinking that they're gonna you know come out of, of the adventure with you know 75% equity or even 50% and that's very very uncommon um, so I, my advice to people I talk to all the time is, hey, like you're going to need money to grow and you can't be afraid of it. And, you know, even with me, some of my mistakes was actually waiting too long. You know, you should do it um, well before you need it. Um, and it's always going to work out better. Let's change topics a little bit to finding a manufacturer. I assume you went to an outside manufacturer to help with the manufacturing of your apparel. How did you go about finding that partner? A lot of trial and error in the beginning. Um, I had worked in apparel a little bit, like I like I told you. So I had a few contacts, you know, to make T-shirts and hats and some easy stuff. But then um, I really had to find a few key, key, key partners. Uh, we're talking like close business partners that um, you can re- rely on, and so. When we started manufacturing cut and sew products, you know, in China and India, I definitely had to rely on some outside relationships and be introduced to the right people. I hear a ton of stories still of people getting screwed by manufacturers, which is a little odd because we never have, but maybe it's come down to us picking the right partners and managing it right. Uh, but it can be complicated and, you know, it becomes international business. Um, and so there's a whole different set of customs and rules that you got to learn and, you know, dealing with, um, you know, Chinese businessmen or Indian business people. Um, it's, it's, it's really interesting and, and exciting, but, you know, I think picking, picking those partners and viewing them as, you know, 
partners in your business is, is really, really, really important. And creating relationships that are beyond just business is also important because you're going to rely on, on these people to, you know, help you through hard times and they're going to rely on you to, to pay them and, uh, and, and to, you know, continue doing business together. So, um, definitely I've always viewed those relationships as, as true partnerships and, um, and they've, they've helped me out a ton over the last five, six years. Let's change the topic and talk about selling the product to retailers early on. How did you learn to do that? I'm curious to know what were those first approaches like? Did you go in with a pricing sheet, a terms and conditions sheet, uh, layout of your product line, brochures, things like that. What were those first approaches like and what did you learn from it? You know, in the beginning, you know, we we didn't rely as much on like, here are the terms and conditions, here's how it's going to be, we're going to own you, this is, you know, this is the way we do business. It was more of a, like, introduction to an idea and we were kind of relying on them in a lot of ways to, you know, take a risk on us. So when I went in there initially, it was you know with a story that I was passionate about, with a catalog that reflected that, with pictures of product and pictures of our adventures to kind of help communicate what our brand was about, and in our case, what the season was inspired by, um, and you know some some sales tactics. But I you know I'm a different kind of salesman. I guess I was more of a, a salesman of ideas. Uh, so I had to bring in a few true you know sales reps and a sales manager that knew the other side of it, which was not necessarily here's all the, are the ter- here, you know, here's the terms and conditions, but just more the art of selling product, not just selling an idea. So for me early on, it was, it was really about, you know, gaining trust and passion and, and just delivering and, and, you know, up till today, now we're, now we're a little bit more about terms and conditions and it's like a real business, but, you know, I think that's different for, for all businesses. For me, it was, you know, trying to gain trust and just get the product into stores. So. I maybe took a slightly different tactic and maybe used my skill set um, a little differently than maybe a you know a, a entrepreneur that has a sales background would have. And how does a brand like yours, a small startup brand that obviously has been successful and growing to a degree, but many small companies have small marketing budgets. How did you go about creating awareness and demand? for your product with such small marketing budgets? Well, we, so, you know, being more of a marketer and a brand building guy, I definitely put more of an emphasis on marketing and the budget. So, you know, we were spending, as a proportion of our budget, much more on on the marketing efforts than other brands. I think most startups do, but um, kind of our whole story was marketing in the beginning. And like I said, it's fairly complicated. So. Um, we've always allocated more capital to, you know, going on these trips to you know, pay photographers and, you know, secure Royal Enfield motorcycles in the Himalayas, um, you know, not Hondas. So we definitely put more expense into getting the details right. We always have. I think when we started it, marketing and advertising was much more expensive because, you know, social media wasn't nearly where it is today as it is where it is today. So now you'll find that you spend your marketing dollars in different ways. Um, a lot of it is, you know, kind of earned and free. But on the other side, you know, there's a lot of you know different types of targeting and 
you know, digital spending that happens that you know, didn't happen back in the day. So I, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in marketing, obviously. And so we've always skewed our budgets heavier in that direction. Finally, Ryan, did I miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? You know, I think I probably hit hit the notes a few times as we've talked for the last hour, but I think number one is jump off the cliff with the amount of risk that you're able to tolerate and get your idea out into the marketplace to test it, A, and then B, stick to your vision and and try and be pioneering and bold because I think in most cases it's those ideas that are the ones that are, that are successful and they take a lot of confidence to to see through. So I think those two things are, are the most important in getting off the ground. And probably the final, you know, kind of ad that I could give is, you know, don't be afraid to give away parts of your company and um, bring in the money you need to do it right. Um, because often you'll struggle for a long time, longer than you need to struggle for without capital. And you may just burn out. So um, don't be afraid of, of, of money, but just spend it the right way. A terrific way to close, Ryan. Thank you very much. We're talking to Ryan Hitzel of Rourke Revival Apparel. Check out their website at RourkeRevival.com. Ryan, you've been a terrific guest, offering great stories and advice to our aspiring entrepreneurs and listeners. Congratulations on your success, for your entrepreneurial courage, and for sharing your experiences with us. Thanks, Sean. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate the time. Hopefully, uh, it made sense. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes.